There's literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? folks out there, Morris here with another episode of Love That Album. This is episode 18. It was actually going to be episode 19, but I decided to record this one uh, a little bit earlier than planned. Uh, and I'll talk about the Focus album in just a couple of minutes. Hope you're all well. Um, I hope that you've been listening to lots of great music and uh, watching some interesting films and reading great books. Um, yeah, everything's going well down here. Um, and I yeah, just really wanted to... Um, maybe take this opportunity to do something a little bit different today. I've done this a couple of times before where I've gone and recorded an album or an episode about an album by myself, predominantly because I, I'm, it's, it's a little bit sad to say I don't know anyone uh, within you know, my circle of friends who is a Squeeze fan or anyone who uh, at least has revealed to me that they're a fan of Squeeze. Now, this episode is not going to be talking about a Squeeze album per se, but going to be talking about the most recent album from uh, Squeeze lyricist Chris Difford. He put out a wonderful album in 2011 called Cashmere If You Can, and um, it's yeah a really interesting story behind how the album actually uh, came together. Uh, but we'll talk a little bit about that uh, further on down the show. Um, I always like to um, open up the show, generally talking about what albums I've been listening to and asking my partner what albums he's been listening to, but I don't have anyone partnering me on this show, so I'll just go a little bit briefly into uh, what I've been listening to of late. Actually, as, as always, there's you know, probably too much to mention, but I'll go into a couple of things in particular that um, I've really been enjoying listening over the last week or so. Um, the last album from Wilco, The Whole Love. Now, I know there was a whole lot of fuss that came out about this album, and you know, deservedly so. Uh, it, it seems that a lot of the Wilco fans out there tend to prefer, at least those who want to voice up on the forums, on the internet about it, they tend to prefer the so-called more experimental albums, um, like Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. I've never seen anyone profess that their favourite Wilco album is something like A.M., I often wonder whether people's love for Yankee Hotel Foxtrot is more due to the fact that it's a little bit uh, different in its approach to the music rather than the fact that its songs are any better than the songs written on early albums like AM or Being There. Uh, Summer Teeth, which is a straight-ahead pop album, is probably one of my very, very favourites. Uh, but their last album's called The Whole Love, and you know, as I was saying a second ago, people seemed to really enjoy that because they thought that that had a fairly experimental nature and they professed that they liked it a lot better than uh, a couple of albums back, Sky Blue Sky, which was another straight-ahead pop excursion. Uh, I, I'm wondering truly whether the people who you know, profess the whole love as being a great experimental album listen to anything beyond the first track or two. 
because after that it really does tend to me to be just you know a, a pop album and i don't mean that as a bad thing i actually prefer that but um uh, you know, you know once again jeff tweedy and co have uh, shown that uh, their musicianship and their cohesiveness as a band uh, is really just about second to none in um, uh, in today's pop landscape. Uh, the first track on the album called The Art of Almost does sound very, very experimental, but at the heart of it, it's a great song. It's a great tune that could have been done even if they didn't have any of the little bits of feedback and the unusual drumming pattern. Um, but yeah, a great song. And the last song on the album is another highlight. Uh, it goes for about 12 minutes or so. It's a tune called One Sunday Morning. And really, that sounds like it could have easily fitted on being there, or maybe not AM, but certainly on uh, being there would have uh, slotted in quite nicely. And this all from the album that people have been saying, well, they dig it for its experimentation. And that's really, that song is about as traditional as uh, Wilco Get. Might have even fitted in on one of their albums with uh, Billy Bragg if uh, the lyrics had been written by uh, Woody Guthrie. So, um, but overall, still, yeah, a really, really wonderful album. I urge you to search it out if you haven't done so already. Uh, and another album that I've been um, listening to a lot of lately, this is uh, a compilation, which I, I don't know how long it's been out, but I got it maybe a couple of years ago, I think. Um, it's from uh, piano player Vince Guaraldi. Now, even if you don't know the name, although I'm sure a lot of you do, uh, Vince Guaraldi was the man responsible for all the fantastic music in the Peanuts cartoons. Of course, his career got started a lot earlier than the uh, Charlie Brown cartoons did. Uh, I think he'd been making really cool jazz, really cool Latin-sounding jazz from the early 50s, but um, he's most well-known for his Peanuts music, in particular the tune Linus and Lucy. Now, a few years ago, uh, Ellis and Winton Marsalis did their take on the Peanuts music. Uh, half the tunes were Vince Guaraldi covers, uh, predominantly done by the Ellis Marsalis trio. And there were some new originals that Winton had gone and done, although he did do a big band version of Linus and Lucy, the Vince Guaraldi tune. Uh, and there's some really great stuff on that album, but for my money, the best of the music is done by Vince himself. And I'd urge you to um, actually go seek out this compilation or if you're uh, more in the mood for getting any of the uh, original albums as they were, uh, there's uh, things like you know, A Boy Named Charlie Brown, uh, Charlie Brown Christmas, um, and, and yeah, just some really great tunes, really uh, uh, interesting compositional. And, and to be honest with you, I mean, as much as I love those Peanuts cartoons, I think the Vince Guaraldi music really helped make those cartoons as memorable as they are um, but yeah there's some other albums that he'd gone and put out before that I think his big tune um, before the Peanuts music broke was Cast Your Fate to the Wind uh, which I think has been covered you know, many thousands of times and probably one of the more well-known versions I think George Benson did a version of it in the 70s but um, yeah look if uh, you really want a great compilation that encompasses uh, his earlier music as well as the Peanuts stuff, then um, you couldn't go past this definitive Vince Guaraldi compilation out on uh, Fantasy Records. And just looking at this picture of Vince while I'm uh, speaking and even seeing him with a cigarette out of his mouth, he looks uh, very similar to uh, Bun E. Carlos, the drummer of Cheap Trick, um, you know, right down to the mustache and the cigarette. Um, if you've seen the two, write me an email and let me know what you think. Am I 
am I losing it on this? I, I reckon personally I have a point. And with uh, the fine mustache action, there maybe even there'd be uh, some comparison between Vince Guaraldi and uh, Piccolo, the host of Silver and Gold. If you're listening to this live, then um, search out a photo of Vince Guaraldi and tell me whether you see a similarity. All right, anyway, this has been a fairly short intro. Uh, those are a couple of things I've been listening to of late. I think I'll just go to a quick break and then get right into uh, talking about Chris Difford and a little bit about Squeeze in the background behind them and the album that I'm featuring on this episode, Cashmere If You Can. You're listening to Love That Album. GGTMC Live for you fresh air. Big Willie and the Samurai are at your service, breaking films down and turning them around, giving recommendations that are always on point. Visit ggtmc.com for more information. The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, bringing class to the trash since 1977. And we're back from break. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 18. And the focus of this episode will be talking about Chris Difford's latest album, Cashmere If You Can. If this is your first time listening to Love That Album, welcome on board. This is basically the show where I talk about an album in some sort of depth, going through themes of the album, themes of the various songs, and just, I guess, giving it my spin on um, what I see that the songwriter is trying to talk about and uh, what I think of the musicianship, etc., etc. Pretty much what we all do when we're with our mates or on the internet forums, but I've chosen to do it via a podcast. Um, anyway, so um, before I talk about the album in general, let's just talk a little bit about uh, Chris Difford and Squeeze. Now, uh, Squeeze in Australia never really had uh, much in the way of top 40 hits, and I gather that this was pretty much the way how it was in uh, in the US as well. And but from what I can gather, they were sort of like... Uh, they had some modicum of success in the UK for quite a few years. Uh, they, It looks like they went through about three periods. Uh, the orig original incarnation, uh, where they went through, I guess, something of that new wave. They were associated with the new wave of music that came out late 70s, early 80s. However, I think that a large chunk of their sound really owes more to the classic pop of the 60s, mixed with maybe a good fashion dose of clever lyricism from uh, Chris Difford's pen. With Glenn Tilbrook focusing on writing the melodies for the song, Chris, Divin, Chris Difford was given free reign to uh, be writing a range of songs on subjects such as love, infidelity, living under hard times, spouse abuse, picking up women in pubs, and of course, wanking. Uh, pulling muscles from a shell. What a great song that is. And probably uh, we ought to do, um, maybe we ought to suggest to the folks at the List podcast that they ought to uh, do a special uh, listing their favourite songs about wanking. Because, uh, and I'd say certainly, pulling muscles from a shell would have to be right up there with the best of them. Um, so anyway, the uh, original lineup of Squeeze uh, existed for you know, a, a number of years, I think till 1982. Uh, there was all sorts of problems that seemed that got in the way and they split up, although Dippet and Tilbrook stayed on as a songwriting team. 
recorded an album just under their name. Then they got back together again in 1985 uh, using, I think, the last lineup that they'd uh, recorded under, under the original incarnation. Uh, that stayed together for, I think, another 14 years, and I think there was always going to be like the cinder's chance in the snow of them ever getting back together again. But uh, lo and behold, I think 2007, 2008, to this very day, Squeeze are uh, touring uh, essentially with just Difford and Tilbrook from the original lineup and uh, with other musicians tagged on. Uh, there's been quite a few people who can say that they're a member of uh, Squeeze at one time or another, uh, two particular notables. Um, uh, well, no, three particular notables, I think I should point out. Uh, Jules Holland, who's gone on to be something of uh, a, a TV celebrity with his show uh, later, and I believe he's done some travel shows as well. Um, and also a couple of uh, members of Elvis Costello's attractions. Uh, Pete Thomas played for uh, a time with... Um, with uh, Squeeze, and I'm just wondering whether... Uh, oh, yeah, no, Steve Naive also played with Squeeze for uh, a, a brief time. And I'm pretty sure Pete Thomas is the drummer on, um, I think, what might have been their last A&M album, Some Fantastic Place, and that's really some fantastic album, and a great song uh, that is too. Uh, so, on to Diffid himself. So, when, when um, Squeeze, we're between that second phase and the current third phase, of their existence, uh, Tilbrook went and released a number of well-received albums, and I should probably be doing another episode somewhere down the line about one or two of uh, his albums, which I'm really quite a big fan of. Uh, but it was always going to be a little bit harder for uh, Difford because, you know, at least with Glenn Tilbrook, he had the music compositional chops, and it was just a matter of him seeing if he could uh, find the words that suited. And fortunately for him, he turned out to be quite a deft lyricist himself. Uh, for Chris Difford, it was always going to be interesting to see how he went because he always had uh, the gift of a great lyric. But uh, what he's gone and done is for um, his solo albums, he's gone and found uh, other people to write with and presumably they're the ones who are doing the, um, uh, doing the music, doing the composing for him while he uh, just gets to concentrate on the lyrics. And on this album, he's got uh, two people who he's co-writing with. One of them is uh, his producer for the album, Leo Abrahams. And another guy who um, I think has got a bit of a name uh, unto himself, I don't know very much about him, but maybe you listeners do, called Boo Hewardine. I've heard of him before. I know he came out to Australia for a time and performed music with a local singer called Sally Dasty but I don't really know much else about him. But I believe that he uh, does have a bit of a career all of his own in uh, the UK. So, um, yeah, they've gone and provided some really fantastic music for um, for uh, Difford's lyrics on Kashmir, if you can. Um, more so, I think, than anything I've heard from Chris writing in Squeeze, he's writing really personally now. A lot of what he wrote in Squeeze, I suppose, were stories or third-person narratives, but he's really writing a lot closer to home, and we'll get into that when I get to the album in depth. But thematically, this album is really interesting. He's writing uh, songs about his father, his children, his stupid mistakes as a youth, uh, a little bit about his time in Squeeze, even. Uh, and his songwriting here really reminds me of a cross between Loudon Wainwright III and Ray Davies. Um, also, listening to Difford sing here is quite a lovely experience. 
uh, in Squeeze, most of the lead singing was done by Glenn Tilbrook with Difford often singing underneath him like by an octave or two octaves even um, in, in unison. Uh, apart from Cool for Cats, really, to the best of my memory, I don't think I've ever had the chance to really hear Chris sing in his own right. And here, on, a lot of the time on this album, he sings with a certain wistfulness. He's not a singer's singer, but what he does is absolutely perfect for these very personal songs. Um, it's, it's a really great storyteller's voice. It's an everyman's voice, but it's absolutely, well, for lack of a better word, enchanting. And it's really appropriate for the material on this album. Um, the I, one thing I never seem to talk about much on the program, but I think I will bring up here, is the cover art. Uh, the, it, it's really very clever. The album cover looks like the cover of a penguin paperback. Uh, the back cover shows a series of well-worn paperback books on a shelf with their spines showing, and all the books, all the titles of the books on this shelf are the songs, the names of the songs, as they appear on the album. And I don't think it's really by any coincidence that this is the case because every song on this album is a mini story. Apparently what Chris had originally gone and done was release each one of these songs to the internet and fans could buy them individually. It's sort of like buying chapters in a book, how they might have used to do it in the 1800s. Every Every month there'd be an instalment. I mean, these are all self-contained songs. There's no, it's, it's not a thematic album in the sense of, um, say, Tommy or anything like that. But there are themes that run commonly throughout this album, which we'll get to uh, in a little bit. But um, I, I really like how he's just gone and taken this uh, very literary approach to the songs. And I don't mean that in the sense that the songs are, uh, overly wordy or anything like really more to the contrary he's got a, a certain economy with the words but every sentence is well thought out every lyric is thought out and truly means something and in that sense I guess he's got a lot of common with uh, the way how Paul Simon approaches a song I mean look I've not spoken to either of the men but I've read about what how Paul Simon does everything very methodically and I don't know maybe Jules just picks lyrics out of the air rather than taking a very sit down workmanlike approach but it sounds like there's nothing out of place here and it really sounds to me like it could have gone down the Paul Simon approach to the songwriting uh, yet with a very personal nature of Aladdin Wainwright the third lyric and I'll really be speaking a little bit more about that fairly shortly you know I guess it's because of the straight ahead approach to the lyrics look I'm rambling on here a little bit about the album in general so I should probably now take the time to go to the album song by song uh, before I do that, I guess we'll have another quick break and then we'll go song by song through Cashmere If You Can by Chris Difford. You're listening to Love That Album. When you're watching movies, are you sick of remakes, reboots, reimaginings, reinventions, and Reese Witherspoon? Are you fed up with movies where giant robots try to remake Enter the Dragon? Do you think that torture porn is vastly inferior to 1970s drive-in porn? Do you find Botox actresses with fake tits and action heroes with no chest hair a turn-off? Do movies where no single shot lasts more than two and a half seconds piss you off? Yeah, me too. That's why I do Paleo Cinema Podcast, a podcast for films more than 20 years old. So if you think that Sid Charisse is a guy and that Myrna Loy is a kind of metal you need Paleo Cinema Podcast. Go to paleo-cinema.com 
and do yourself a favour. And we're back from break. Morris speaking here, you're listening to Love That Album. The focus of this episode is Chris Difford's album, Cashmere, If You Can. And a good chunk of this album is really about Difford looking back on his life. Um, a large chunk of it is to do with memory, sometimes with fond nostalgia and sometimes with regret and cursing himself as to some of the stupid things he might have done throughout his life. But um, overall, this doesn't feel like a sad album. It still feels like there's some sort of celebration and he's very fond of uh, a lot of his life and what, where music and and uh, his family have gotten him. Uh, and But there, there's still things that he's done which he's you know, pretty deeply ashamed of. And I guess in some ways this album is like some sort of catharsis for him on a few of the songs anyway. Uh, but anyway, we'll... we'll Let's get into uh, the album's opener. Uh, appropriately enough, he decides he's going to start the album where his musical career all began. Uh, the name of the first song is called 1975, and musically it sounds like something that could have fitted into that glam era. Um, it's, it, it's basically... It's, the whole song uh, is a celebration of what he achieved in his lifetime as a musician, but there's also... Um, a a, a large chunk of it that talks about the dark road that he's travelled as well. Um, so every verse, that the pattern of the song takes verse by verse, he explains about something that happened to him and marks it by a particular year. So 1975 is where the song and where the song starts and where the first verse starts. Um, it's you know the year that he decided to become a songwriter and decided to. Uh, be a working musician and he was in love with the idea of the life that that gave to him you know having represented by things like having stickers uh, on his guitar case to indicate the road that he's traveled and uh, also his decision to um, give up uh, a safe but what he perceived as a dull existence uh, by the time we get to the second verse it's you know 1979 and things are not going so well by that stage i mean on the surface to the general public Squeeze already had a couple of albums out. I think that was the year that Cool for Cats was released. Uh, but he sings, I hid between the shadows that fell around my soul. I drunk myself in circles and dug myself a hole so I could bury feelings while I was getting high, enjoying the darkest moments of 1979. Um, so there's already the element of uh, rock and roll excess. His initial euphoria at just being part of the music scene has... Um, given way to, I guess, you know, drug taking and, and, and drink, uh, alcohol drinking and all the other excesses that goes along with bands travelling on the road. Uh, the shadows around my soul line indicates he was having some troubles dealing with uh, the road uh, or fame or even both. Uh, the next verse, he sings about uh, the excess of his life that cost him his family and his wife and even money. He probably had some bad business deals. I presume, and also a severe lack of confidence that it cost him. Uh, 1999, the next verse, um, he sings about having a lack of foundation in his life, uh, possibly you know, the family that he uh, previously uh, walked away from. And uh, he also sings about going in and out of rehab over the years. Uh, and you know, this marks the following years with uh, band turbulence. Uh, 
um, Divot and Tilbrook uh, had had a falling out many years before, but they'd still decided that they were going to uh, pursue things as a songwriting team and keep the band going on, as I mentioned before, with uh, quite a number of lineup changes. Um, there's a great line uh, in the song, uh, given that the uh, the verse that that uh, the, the year that that verse marks is 1999. He sings, "We partied like it was over in 1999," referring to uh, the, the split of squeeze Mark II. Um, well, really, not Mark II, but you know, Phase Two. There were several lineups in that 1985 to 1999 phase. Um, ultimately, though, in the final verse where Dipper sings, you know, beyond that. It sounds like I'm complaining, but I'm happy to be here. It's been a pleasant journey that seems to disappear with every day that passes. I'm looking back in time. I've never been so happy as 1975. So it really sounds like Difford, in, in a way, has been complaining about all that went on in his life and just wants to go back before all the shit that happened over the years with the drugs and the drink and going in and out of rehab. Uh, look, I don't know the guy, never met him, but I choose to believe that he's being more wistful about the naive spirit and the excitement that started out his professional musician life. Um, and he's uh, not so much saying, well, I'm not happy that, uh, with what I'm doing here today, but I'm just really sort of thinking how happy I was with that initial uh, naive uh, sense of excitement that I had starting out my musician life and I want to take some of that spirit with me today. He knows he had some dark moments, but he'd still return to that time and do it all again if he could. But, you know, here he is, uh, still touring with Squeeze, putting out great solo albums like this, so he can't be too unhappy, I figure. Uh, okay, so song two on the album, uh, this is where he decides he's going to sing something about his family, and if you're, if you're a any sort of parent, or, you know, or you know, I guess in our case, uh, cases a father, and I know this song really uh, has, has got me thinking a lot. It's called Like I Did, uh, and any parent who listens to this song today will you know, possibly shudder. We all grew up wanting to you know, gain some level of independence and do the things that our folks wouldn't necessarily approve of. Now we see that our kids are doing the same things that we did but we either complain and appear a hypocrite or shut up and grit our teeth and continue getting frustrated at what they do. Um, this is all set to a very bouncy, happy melody, quite in contrast to the frustration Chris must be feeling as a father. Uh, so in the first verse he's singing about his son. He's getting stoned like I did. He's playing bass like I did. He lays in bed like I did, but how can I complain? Uh, the next verse he's singing about his daughter, she's looking cool like I did, cuts down her jeans like I did, she stays out late like I did, but how can I complain? And then this great chorus, and the wheels turn a few degrees, but nothing's really changed. Life still looks deranged from each other's point of view, and it's funny how your kids turn into you. If you've, Even if you've not been a parent, but you've read the Zitz cartoon strip in the newspaper, then these words will mean something to you and certainly if you're a parent uh, who had previously led the sort of life where you've gone and given your parents much grief and here you are today and your kids are giving you grief this song will really pull a few strings for you i think uh there's certainly lyrics that any parent can identify i think you've grown up and you put your values onto your kids they don't get you and you claim not to get them but you used to be them 
they'll eventually turn into you, for better or for worse. Uh, look, the music here is a really lovely, happy, jaunty melody, and despite Chris's declarations of frustration, the music shows that he has a lot of affection for his kids. In a way, this songwriting really reminds me, as I mentioned before, of Loudon Wainwright III. Loudon Wainwright has a well-documented public history with his kids, not a lot of it good. He wrote about his family uh, a lot. Some flattering, and but mostly a lot not. Um, Martha Wainwright's uh, retaliation to her father uh, in, in that uh, wonderfully affectionate song, Motherfucking Bloody Asshole, shows what she felt about her dad. Yet, he had a really good descriptive style and a sharp eye for detail, and that's why I like uh, Ladin Wainwright's song to David's family, even if his family doesn't. And, uh, this song, Like I Did by Chris, uh, really shows some of the same songwriting technique that I think uh, Ladin Wainwright shows in songs like Five Years Old that he wrote for Martha. So Martha could do a lot worse and go back to that really lovely song that he got and wrote for her uh, as a child. The next song on the album is called The Still and the Sparkling. It's a really lovely acoustic bass melody, very gentle with that very 70s sounding intimate production style. Um, and the arrangement's just beautiful. The verses are acoustic guitar dominated and uh, the chorus has got this beautiful piano embellishment. It's simplicity in itself and really he's following the rule of less is more. Uh, this song sounds to me like it's sung from the perspective of an insecure guy who's deeply infatuated with someone but doesn't want to appear too pushy in gaining her affection. Um, everything she does feels so wonderful to him, yet the song never feels creepy like the character is the stalker of every little thing she does is magic by the police or even worse, every breath she takes. Um, this, the, the guy in this song, he's just an awkward, geeky guy who's infatuated but is in fear of expressing too much for um, fear of driving the, uh, uh, the object of his affection off. And you know, I guess it's a common theme, but it's just really pursued lovely. Um, he, sings, he sings these lyrics, he sings, I love how we meet up and sit close together. I love how we say things that could mean so much. When I have to drive home while I sit and wonder if I should have pushed you to reach for your love. And I am so careful to seem, to not seem complacent, to not be so slack with the things that I do. I'll buy you sweet roses, I'll bring you love colours, I'll climb any mountain to be close to you. And I don't know, maybe to some people that might sound like run-of-the-mill lyrics, but just how this works with the music, how this fits in with this gorgeous melody, just really seems beautiful and sincere and not at all stalkery. Please, I don't know, if you feel differently, please write in and tell me off. Um, but yeah, the melody in the chorus is, is just so wistful. Um, and if you listen to this, it'll make sense what I mean by that. Um, this character is nervous, not creepy. He, really, he, he could be any one of us. He feels how a lot of us feel at the start of a relationship. And Chris has really gone and captured that beautifully here. Uh, the next song on the album is called Back in the Day. And as I said at the start of all of this, one of the big themes of this album is Chris looking back over his history and thinking back to incidents over his life, both good and bad. So there's really a, a lot of nostalgia on this album, but not always good nostalgia. Um, the, the, the music itself is a bit of a country flavored theme with a rockabilly guitar feel. It's a minor key uh, country feel. Um, and 
he, he, in this song he declares about the really stupid things that he did. Um, he, he talks about a time in his life where he was a skinhead and he and his mates beat up an old woman and he declares though that it was the day that ruined his life. Uh, he sings, um, it was the day that ruined my life and we did it just because we could. Uh, the chorus he sings, Back in the day when I was young, I thought that life was just for fun. I thought I was invincible, but all that had to change. I still think I'm impossible, but not as strange as I was back in the day. Now, really why this song works so much for me, even though the verses are singing about stupid incidents that Chris did in his own life, that chorus there really could apply to absolutely anyone who's thinking back. Over, uh, over their youth, you could be thinking, wow, well, gee, I really did something stupid back then, but I'm really trying to get on with my life, and I might still be difficult, but, you know, I've learned something from uh, back in the day. Um, this song, in, in particular, is, is an album of recollections that must have been hard for Chris to write. There's some recollections, I, I, I imagine, besides that, you know, first verse, that would have been very uncomfortable for him to write about. Uh, but, you know, Chris Dippett is a songwriter, so he doesn't really need to go to a counsellor. He shares his uh, life with his band, where his counsellor um, In the second verse, he recounts of punching a friend out while in uh, Harrods, uh, someone who presumably cared for, but we don't really know who. Um, he also sings about, you know, wetting the bed and throwing up for being drunk on whiskey. He's not so much groveling for forgiveness, forgiveness here, but he's trying to explain that, you know, he had been a stupid, ignorant youth back in the day, who knows, who, who knew no better about how to treat others and himself. Um, he's lived a life not necessarily of regret, but now that he's changed his life he, to be less narcissistic, he wants to get on with it and expunge his former behaviour in a very cathartic way through writing this song. I love the minor key feel of this music, and uh, the guitar motif adds really good level of tension and anxiety. Uh, that's also played up in the lyric. Uh, what next? Okay, so the next song on the album is called Sydney Street, and this is Chris recounting about the life that his father had led as a World War II soldier. Uh, unlike a lot of other songs that deal with war, take note Roger Waters, um, this doesn't tackle war necessarily as a broad evil concept, though it is, but in this song he's tackling it very more as a personal thing, the relationship that he had with his father, and the stories that he knew from his father. Um, the first verse he sings, He went off to battle, he went off to war. At 21 years old, he walked out the door with bags on his shoulders and under his eyes. He hadn't been sleeping in fear of his life. Incredible! In this one verse, Chris has painted a really vivid picture to me. Uh, the broad brush stakes paint a picture of the era, so you could almost even see what Chris's father's cast looked like. Um, and the finer brush strokes shows this scared young man who's probably, you know, never been allowed to enter a pub, never mind, you know, being, you know, and here he's being allowed to go to war, being sent off to war. Um, and he uses some really very simple but succinct descriptions here. He sings, he slept on a blanket of darkness and fear, his boots by his rucksack and the fag by his ear. Uh, he also said he feared for his future and what that might be. It's, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing verbose here, it's just pure, simple, everyday language, but there's not a word out of place, and he's conveyed the picture absolutely perfectly. 
So while he's building up this atmosphere of tension and dread, Chris then shows his father's inner strength and camaraderie that his father and his mates felt. He sings in a chorus, but they pulled together like men often will in the trenches and dugouts on the side of the hill. Chris's father, like so many men, returned home from the war, but living in an era when men wouldn't burden their family if they'd talk at all, Chris probably couldn't have really fully appreciated everything his father went through. He mentions there's no talk of heroics or, or all of his mates who were lost, but you know, he obviously could imagine what his father had went through. Um, in the end, Chris is just glad that his dad did make it home and he quietly admires him. In the end, this is not so much a song about war, but about the anxiety both of young men and their loved ones during times of conflict, um, something which is unfortunately all too real today. Still, we haven't learned our lessons. Um, and it's also about the admiration of a young son for what his father endured, both mentally and physically. The next couple of songs are about getting old, and Chris writes these songs with somewhat of a sense of humour. Um, the first of these two songs is called Cotton Tops. Uh, it's a great song about Chris's fear of growing old and ending up in an old person's home. Um, there's a mid-tempo feel and some Middle Eastern guitar scales played, which make this uh, all the more uh, humorous uh, of a song, uh, rather than the depressing subject it could otherwise have been. And at the beginning, there's something of a Dick Dale surf guitar rush, which uh, really is a lot of fun. Uh, so he sings, I'm stuck in a room watching TV where the cords are pulled by my bed in case I have an accident. Forced to drink soup, sucking white bread, forking around every meal, maybe God will do a deal. Obviously he's not painting an idyllic experience here, but the uh, song listeners are the beneficiary of his great descriptive power. Chris is not under any delusions. From the pamphlets obviously put out by the old person's homes, they're not places of joy and stimulation. It's a place where you wait to die, at least in the world of uh, Chris's Cotton Top song. He does not make a flattering picture. As I said, the music and black humour keep one from slashing like his wrists. He sings, I never thought my time would come. Life seemed to be on repeat as I shuffle my feet. However, the really great line towards late in the song just when we're beginning to think that Chris is going to be a really grumpy old man and he just is wishing that he'd shuffle off this mortal coil. He sings, fuck the jigsaws all day. I want to live. I don't want to fade away. Popular culture representation showing the unflattering picture of uh, old age homes that Chris describes here. Um, but the song could be really about people at any age. The last line of the song could equally apply to... Uh, Mr. Briefcase at the office who's staying occupied while his heart beats but decides he needs that life change to actually live. So it's, it's superficially I guess this is a song about someone waiting to um, waiting to uh, leave the old aged person's home but that one line uh, I want to live, I don't want to fade away uh, could really apply to any of us so I think there's something universal about that great song. However, the next song, um, this is also a really humorous one. Uh, and there's, I, I should mention actually, with this album, there's no lyrics provided, but what Chris has gone and done is he's gone and written a few of his own personal thoughts about each one of these songs, um, which I haven't really referred to too much because I 
didn't want to sort of get my own impressions judged. But I did have a read, did have a brief read, and I thought there was a couple of songs I wanted to make re reference to in what um, uh, Chris actually has to say. So in this in this song, Upgrade Me, uh, Chris tells a story how he went um, to the funeral for uh, early on Squeeze keyboard player Jules Holland. Uh, his father's name was Derek. Chris had been very friendly with Derek, discussing, you know, the obvious important things in life, women, cricket and beer. And Chris imagined Derek getting to heaven and demanding, uh, discovering, as on earth, uh, a multi-tiered la layer or multi-tiered level of service and that as a new entry to heaven, he'd have to have the lowest status. Chris figured Derek was the sort of person who would demand, I want you to upgrade me, which is pretty much, he reckons, what he did while he was here on Earth. I've already spoken about the Loudon Wainwright, the third approach to lyrics on this album, but it feels really pronounced here. In fact, this song feels like it could have been uh, a co-write between Loudon Wainwright, the third, uh, Corbin and Bert Bacharach. Uh, the, uh, the music itself is a bit of a samba mixed with the, that girly type of background vocal that works so well on the Burt Bacharach tunes. What's really lovely here is the humility of the character. Uh, and, and, well, presumably Derek, Phil Holland's dad, requesting to be upgraded. It's not an arrogant demand, it's just very nice and gentle. He sings, upgrade me please. I'd like the biggest bed with pillows everywhere and lights around my head with a golden gown and a seat with a great view so I can see the kids and all that they might do. Um, Chris has really captured Derek's character here, uh, or at least what I presume Derek's character was like. He wants the good life, uh, or, or maybe that's a poor choice of words, what I meant to say, he wants the good afterlife, but he brings that nice paternal twist to justify his request. He's not saying, I demand because you know, I am who I am and my son is a big piano player on earth and you're going to give me what I want. He says, no, I want to go and just make sure that I have an eye on the kids, you know, but that's probably his twist on uh, wanting to just have that good afterlife, how he's looked after. And some really nice touches here. Uh, Chris's vocal has a lovely natural uh, big room recording dynamic about it. It's, uh, the producer's gone and done a great job here. Uh, and there's a lovely French accordion that's tastefully thrown into here. Um, yeah, no, great song. Um, another just wonderful line, the last line I'll sort of quote from this song. He said, first class o'clock is all I'll entertain. I mean, I guess it's something that we all feel, you know, we all want to get treated the best. Um, and I guess, you know, going to the afterlife uh, would be no exception. So yeah, lovely song there, Upgrade Me. Uh, the next song is a less of a humorous approach uh, to songwriting. Uh, it's called Who'd Ever Want to Be? Uh, and the structure of this song has each verse uh, opening and closing with the same rhetorical question, uh, who'd want to, and finishing it off with whatever the subject for that verse might be. So the first half of the song reads something like a, a, a bit of a treatise on, on uh, machismo. So he sings a who'd want to, Who'd ever want to go out and uh, box? Uh, who'd want to own a gun? Who'd want to fight and go to war? And it's obviously not a flattering picture. He sings, Who'd want to box out in the ring and feel their head begin to sting? Young boys meet in empty halls, their fathers have them by the balls. 
they drive them. Uh, actually, I'm not quite sure what he sings at the next point. It's a bit unusual, but he sings they drive them to something, something. So they fight and knock out teeth. It's underground like fighting dogs who really want the box. And you know, there's something of the element there of young guys doing this because it's what their dad did or because what their dad expects of them. And each verse covers its subject in a similar vein and shows something of Chris's dismay at what society takes for granted really seems very, very bizarre. I love this line in the verse about who'd want to go to war. When you're flown home and laid to rest, they'll lay a medal on your chest. This whole verse says how strange it is that we'd honour the idea of war by getting our name in the newspaper and receiving a posthumous medal. Of course, we could add to that how strange it is to tell anyone the glory and honour it supposedly brings you, uh, and that's even outside of war. Um, then away from the machismo there's this Who'd want to sit and burn a flame On dirty spoons with little grains You've kissed it handsome on all fours You think it's great but are you sure? This is the way a mum should be A little baby on your knee Addicted to the dark of pain Who'd want to sit and burn that flame To me this verse is really really tragic The previous verses are immensely sad but this one seems particularly upsetting because to an extent there's more of a choice one can make about one's destiny and it's not taken. Um, yeah, that's pretty much all I'll say about that at that point. Uh, the song is played out to a beautiful finger-picked melancholy acoustic guitar melody and one can only imagine the state of mind Chris was in while he was uh, writing this. It's a you know, pretty depressing sort of song. Uh, very melancholic, but um, yeah, still with that beautiful acoustic guitar feels quite melodic and lovely to listen to nevertheless. Okay, this next song uh, is another one meant for uh, new parents out there. It's interesting uh, to see that you know, Chris has got the guts to uh, write about this experience. Um, it won't, yeah, if you're a parent, but also if you've been as we, you know, we've been someone's child, within someone's son or daughter um, and we'll all identify with it uh, so this song is called Passion Keller uh, Chris sings this song both from the perspective of himself as a teenage son in the first verse and the father of a teenager in the rest of the song the subject is about trying to have sex while the wide awake passion killers your parents or your offspring depending on which part of the equation you're on uh, on the other side of a thin wall. The parents are listening for you, the teenagers are playing guitar with their mates late into the night with no plans of a finish time. It's a really very funny and clever lyric that's uh, played to a disco beat. Normally, well, you know, I wouldn't be listening to a disco song, not my bad baby. But um, here it's all quite fun and, and uh, very entertaining, very funny lyric. Um, in, in uh, the verse where he's singing about himself as a parent. Uh, he sings, we sneak around in the night and hope the kids don't hear us. When you live in a very small house, you end up with a very small penis. Mm. He's in his room with his cool mates. They play guitar and throw some shapes, tossing and turning under the sheets. Passion Keller. Um, but like the Frankenstein, his brain is slow. But there are things you know he knows. And all this couple with the disco beats and some very sexy guitar solos. And uh, oh, of course, you can't forget the moans. 
There's a song about sex, you can't forget the names of a few of those. And they really make this a piss funny song. Um, so, yeah, but I'm wondering how much Chris is uh, telling us about uh, what's gone on in his household. He probably figures that it's something that we all go through, and probably it is. Uh, so um, he, he, he tells that, well, you know, I'm not really revealing anything new. It's happened to all of you. I'm not, I'm not really shedding too much information here. Uh, okay, uh, the next song is, if, if you look this up on YouTube, there's a little film clip that goes along with this, and not the most exciting film clip, it's a song called Goldfish, and sure enough, it's just, the film clip is just of a goldfish swimming around a bowl, that's it. Um, it's the story of a guy who's cheated on his partner, as, as is sung in the song, she'd been shat on once again. Uh, she discovers a text on his phone, and, and we can only guess as to the contents of that message, and then she storms out. Uh, but obviously, you know, a tale of infidelity. Um, this song is actually sung as, sung as a duet between uh, Chris and uh, a singer called Catherine Williams, who I don't know. Um, but it's not sung as a he said, she said type of thing, but it, 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 they're both as third person narrators, but still the feel in their voices. Uh, show some sort of empathy with the characters that they're singing about. Uh, I think it's Chris who sings in the song. Uh, he came back home to see that there in the goldfish bowl, his phone was bleeding bubbles, a lonely looking soul. A note upon the table and the words he feared he'd read. You can have your cake and eat it, but the goldfish comes with me. I mentioned earlier on that I really like the front cover of this album and how it showed that this uh, Chris is going somewhere with telling a whole lot of little stories, you know, the cover being a very bookish sort of cover. And this song, like a lot of the other songs on the album, uh, has such uh, such great description to it. And that verse that I read was a really great little descriptive verse and sort of funny that the goldfish is the one thing that she wants to take out of the relationship. Uh, still, you know, on the surface, it seems like a funny title for the song on what would be a seemingly trivial point, until later in the song, where we discover that the male's character is really an uncaring, serial relationship Don Juan. Uh, we find out that he's actually left a trail of broken relationships, either through lack of care or of infidelity. He does the same thing over and over, and is swimming through life, or he's swimming through a relationship goldfish bowl. He won't change because that's all he knows, just like the goldfish in the bowl. And I think it's a really very funny, very clever metaphor for, um, for this tale of infidelity. It's, it, you know, musically, it's, it's a gentle little song. That has tinged with sadness, uh, with a focus on a two-note rhythmic pattern in each bar, uh, as played on the acoustic guitar, with some really lovely little piano embellishments. Uh, Catherine Williams uh, really adds something to the song with a, a fairly breathy vocal style. But I mean, come to think of it, for that matter, so does um, so does Chris. He has something of a breathy vocal style on this album. He probably always did in Squeeze, but um, with most of the focus being made on Glenn Tilbrook, um, it's only really coming out when we listen to him as a solo artist. Uh, the next song, Wrecked, uh, this is a song about uh, drifting away the days while being stoned. Every simple act seems strongly emphasised, even if it's something as trivial as pouring the tea or, or brushing one's teeth. 
the hazy sound of the music at least to me reinforces the feel of the lyric and Chris's voice is absolutely perfect for this. Presuming Chris is writing autobiographically, he's singing about those times being his formative days as he sings on the chorus. Looking back, those were my formative days, tubular bells and purple haze. Look at me now, I'm as clean as the queen. What a wonderful journey it's been, wrecked by all possible means. I'm not actually certain that when he's singing he's as clean as the queen, it's indicative of him being you know, that happy with his current status, yet you certainly get the feeling that he wasn't happy with doing nothing more than meeting his friends at the pub, then bringing them home to get stoned. Uh, he sings, you know, those are the happiest days were when we scored. Um, in the end, it's just a great descriptive piece with a wonderful, lazy, drifty feel to the music. At the song's end, he sings about not having found the ideal existence and wanting to meet his young self to get wrecked with. Um, but the final song on the album uh, shows possibly the, con the, the consequence of that. The last song uh, is called Happy Once Again. Uh, it's a minor key country song, as all the best country songs are, I guess. Uh, and this song's... Uh, it, it, yeah, it really does sound to me like a continuation of the last one. And Chris, he seems like he is caught up with himself as a young man. And after acknowledging all the pain that he went through as a result of, you know, the, you know, the drugs that he took or, or, you know, being a skinhead or whatever other regrets that he had in life, he's happy to see him happy once again. Uh, he's saying, I met myself for the first time. We shook hands and talked for hours at the top of ivory towers on grains of sand. You took my hand and led me home. It's good to know you're not alone. You're not alone. Um, once again, I think I want to sort of return to the album notes for this. Just, it, it's, it's really lovely to read. He's singing about this song. This is me. We met for the first time one day and shook hands. I was taken by how young I looked and how in my mother's likeness I seemed so distant. But we got on like a house on fire. The journey to me is never found. Its path is mined by self-destructive, explosive behaviour. I can't help that. Depression is part of my journey. To be happy is to know that. It was a fine meeting. We drank tea and ate cake. We said goodbye and we walked away together. Um, yeah, look, really beautiful description. And it's a lovely song. I love the concept of this song and of this story. It ends the album on a positive note but he still has his musical foot rooted in some of the melancholia moods uh, that are present elsewhere on the album. And it also relates to him looking back, but also taking stock of where he is at the present. Um, and it's just a fine way, I think, to close off the album. So there you go. Uh, how long have I spoken about that? 35 minutes. It's probably one of the shorter uh, album descriptions I've done in recent weeks on Love That Album. So I think I'll take one more break and then get to... Uh, I've got a little bit of feedback here for you. So um, I'll be back after uh, one more break uh, to uh, finish off. You're listening to Love That Album. American Dream He's just a common man The American Dream does the road be I'm coming to you live and in living color. Speak to you, the American people. A podcast called Silver Gold Belly. And you know that the American dream, Dusty Rhodes, 
knows how to bring home the gold, daddy. And just like Henry Silva sticking Bobby Boucher's head inside a sow hanging from the ceiling, Silva and gold will stick it to you. Stick it to your ears, stick it to your mouth, your eyes, your nose, daddy. And all points in between, they'll take your listening pleasure and stick it between a sow's caucus hanging from the ceiling, daddy. Silver and gold, we talk about movies and shit. Find us on iTunes or silverandgold.com. Okay, we're uh, into the last part of the show. Uh, have a little bit of feedback, uh, and as usual, our good friend Eric Reanimator has chosen to send an MP3 with a little bit of a music recommendation for you all. I've already sort of caught on to this group who he's talking about through the Facebook page, but uh, have a listen to what Eric has to say about this group called the Ultra Bimbos. Here's Eric Reanimator. Eric Reanimator here today to talk about an album that I love. Today's album is my favorite album of the 2000s, the 2003 and final release from Helsinki's The Ultra Bimbos, Bimbo Wizard. The Ultra Bimbos were part of the Nordic high-energy rock and roll scene the late 90s into the early 2000s, and for my money, they were one of the best bands of that scene they were right up there with the Helicopters and Turbo Negro and Glucifer and the Flaming Sideburns. And uh, I could go on and on with all the great bands that were part of that scene. But the Ultra Bimbos, four women from Helsinki, brought to the stage a combination of passion, soul, honesty, hard rock, fun, garage rock, everything that you could want in an album. Starting off here, we're hearing one of my favorite tracks, Kaleo Love. Kaleo is the neighborhood in Helsinki where the Ultra Bimbos came from. Musically, it's right smack in the middle of their sound. It's poppy, but it's not power pop. It's garagey, but it's not Louie Louie or 96 Tears. And it's punky without being overly bombastic. Rather than go on and on about it, why don't I just give you a sampling? Your own grave. There's no money 
Bimbo's Bimbo Wizard album. As I said, I consider it my favorite album from the 2000s. And I also consider it one of those albums that I would recommend to people. Some of the albums I tend to like are a little out there and have a limited audience. But I do think that the Ultra Bimbos are one of those bands that deserved much wider recognition. And let me just end by saying that about the time that they were hitting their stride in the United States, we were hearing all about the Donnas, the Donnas this, the Donnas that. I thought the Donnas were okay. However, I never felt they held a candle to the Ultra Bimbos. At any rate, this has been Eric Reanimator, and this is an album that I love. And I do want to thank Maurice for pointing me towards the List Music Podcast. It's kind of addictive, and I've been enjoying it. And I would recommend it to anybody who's enjoying this podcast. Also, over on Facebook, not only has the GGTMC started its own music group, but so has Outside the Cinema, who on April 22nd are going to be having their top 10 songs that get you amped. So check that out. Catch you all later. Thanks for that feedback, Eric. It was uh, really good to hear you give a bit of a talk and play some music samples from the Ultra Bimbos. You sent me a couple of MP3 files. I'm definitely hooked. It'll be a little bit of a struggle for me to find a shop here that'll have it. I have had a look in a couple of possible import shops that might have already had it. I could get them to order it, but it might take six months, so I might have to go down the Amazon route, I think. But uh, I'm definitely very keen to catch up and hear the whole album, uh, uh, Bimbo Wizard. Um, oh, sorry, Bimbo Wizard, whatever. Anyway, uh, the Ultra Bimbos, uh, some great music there. Thanks very much for your recommendation. And um, I'm also glad to hear that you've uh, caught up with the guys at the List Music Podcast. I've um, uh, tried to be their champion on uh, the Love That Album Facebook page as well as the Tough Tits and Hot Licks uh, Facebook page, which is the music 
offshoot of the gentleman's guide to midnight cinema so i hope that some of the rest of you music fans out there uh who are uh, listening to my show also give the list music podcast a shot because as eric says it is very addictive and very enjoyable and you find yourself at the end of the show writing out your top five of whatever that week's subject might be uh so you can do that and provide that to uh the list music podcast uh, folk as your feedback onto their Facebook page or send them an email. I know that they'd love to have uh, your response to whatever it is that they've recorded that week or send them your suggestions for top fives that they should cover on the program. Um, really very addictive and very enjoyable listening. So with all that, I guess we've come to the end of uh, Love That Album, a fairly short episode, uh, but at least short by recent week's standards. Uh, not necessarily a bad thing, but I sort of have missed working, bouncing off uh, another presenter, so uh, very soon I'll be doing an episode with Michael Persh of Sitting in a Bar in Adelaide podcast. Uh, before we go out, I'd like to um, just give my cheerios to all the other podcasts which I like to listen to. Um, and so who have we got? The case of The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, listening to uh, Big Willie and the Samurai and their take on a lot of really wonderful and possibly some not so wonderful uh, genre cinema pieces, but their descriptions are always a lot of fun. And those two guys, uh, their friendship really makes uh, what they talk about sound very, very interesting and a lot of fun, even if you wouldn't necessarily watch the film that they're describing, but sometimes you would. Uh, but yeah, great show if you haven't caught up with it, The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Uh, girls on Film, don't know where they're going with that. Those girls have just recently got back together to record an Oscars episode after several months in the podcast wilderness. I hope they record something new soon. Uh, there's Justin Bozong's Mondo Film and Video Guide. Um, he's had a bit of a delay in putting his latest set of episodes in dedication to Jerry Lewis uh, on the web, but uh, they're coming uh, fairly soon, I believe. It's now early April as I record this, so um, I think sometime mid to late April he's planning on putting those Jerry Lewis episodes online. Please give them a listen and catch up with the first few episodes. Uh, dedicated to Kim Darby, if you haven't already done so. It's um, it's really great stuff that uh, Justin has gone and put together. I've done an episode of Love That Album with him, uh, talking about Paul Simon, and we're going to do another episode uh, sometime in the next month or two, talking about the uh, first big star album, number one record. Uh, of course, The Loaf and Dr. Zom at Silver and Gold. Uh, last week they did an episode which they both thought was the worst thing that they'd ever recorded and possibly the worst podcast. Now, personally, just because I spoke of that shitty film didn't mean that it wasn't entertaining podcasting. It was a lot of fun. So if you haven't caught up with Silver and Gold yet, I recommend you do so. I think uh, that they'll be putting out an episode in the next few days. Um, well, it'll have already been on by the time this gets on here, uh, talking about American graffiti. So I really look forward to hearing what they have to say about that. Uh, and Paleo Cinema, uh, Melbourne's own Paleo Cinema, as recorded by film connoisseur, film expert Terry Frost. And the exciting thing for Terry is, as I record this, he is approaching his 100th episode. So big congratulations to you, Terry. Uh, really looking forward to listening to that and providing you with some feedback for that episode. Uh, we're finally actually going to catch up, which will be nice to have a um, cup of tea or, or a glass of beer or whatever it is. But um, So that'll be nice to actually finally get to meet you, Terry. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's going to be a big occasion, 100 episodes of Paleo Cinema. So I urge you to listen to that if you haven't caught up with that yet. 
The final podcast I want to give a bit of a plug to, ones I've just mentioned in the last few minutes, uh, the List Music Podcast, as I already spoke about. Um, yeah, look, give these guys a go. They're really getting better and better every time. Um, it, it just sounds very, very natural. Four friends speaking around a microphone, sometimes with a special guest, uh, about whatever the topic of the week might be, and they're all diverse enough uh, to come up with some different top fives, a little bit of crossover sometimes, but it's always interesting to hear why they like a particular song or why they have a, like a particular player, and they can often relate it to their own personal lives and um, you know, they go beyond the, yeah, this is a great song just because it's a great song. They might have a story about you know something that they were doing at the time and why that means something to them. So yeah, really very, very addictive listening, very, very enjoyable. So search that out. And of course, my good friend Michael Persh uh, with his sitting in a bar in Adelaide. And as I think I might have mentioned last time, uh, he recently celebrated his 300th episode and invited me to join him to speak about our favourite drummers, uh, given that we're both drummers, I guess it seemed like a natural enough excuse for that episode. Uh, but Michael will be uh, joining me for uh, a Love That Album in, on uh, episode 19. I won't give away just yet what we're going to be speaking about for fear that you might never want to listen to me again. But um, it's a great album that uh, if you really search in your heart of hearts, you know you'll admit that you like it and that there's a lot of merit to it. But I won't say what it is uh, at this time. One more thing I think I should mention is contact. If you wish to contact me, and I'd love to get some more feedback, um, please you can email me, either a written email or an MP3 voice, just like Eric Reanimator does, uh, to rrrkitchen, that's rrrkitchen, or one word, at yahoo.com.au. Um, I'd love it. anything that you'd have to write. You want to tell me about an album that's really... Um, thrilling you at the moment, uh, a favourite of yours. You might want to say that you think that one of the albums I've spoken about is a load of shit. Um, that's that's all fine. As long as we you know, keep the discussion about music, um, then that'll be great. I'd love to hear what you have to say. Um, I've got a Love That Album Facebook page. Uh, you might already be on the Tough Tits and Hot Licks Facebook music page. That's fine. Keep the music discussion up there. But if you want to have another source for music discussion on Facebook, then please search the Love That Album Facebook page up and um, please join in the music discussion there. So anyway, thanks very much for uh, listening to me ramble on by myself on this episode about Chris Difford. Um, I just felt I really wanted to have something to say about this fantastic album. Please search it out. And uh, in the meantime, listen to some great music, read some books, watch some films, enjoy yourselves, people, uh, do whatever you have to do to get on with your life and enjoy those things. And we'll see you um, in the next couple of weeks with episode 19 of Love That Album. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 